This is the Cheryl Stroud Skin 365 Expert Podcast, and I'm Cheryl Stroud. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited about today's podcast. Today, we are going to discuss with my special guests, Perry Romanowski and Valerie George, two cosmetic chemists and the host of the Beauty Brains Podcast, what to look for in skincare ingredients as an esthetician, and advice, tips, and cautions on making your own skincare line. But first, let's get to know a little bit more about Perry and Valerie before I bring them on. Perry Romanowski is an independent cosmetic chemist who has spent over 25 years developing products in the personal care and cosmetic industry. He has worked on both hair and skincare products. He is currently vice president of Element 44 Inc., which specializes in science education. He is a longtime instructor for the SCC continuing education program and has authored or edited six books in cosmetic science plus numerous articles. In 2014, Romanowski created the Practical Cosmetic Formulating Online Training Program to provide cosmetic chemists continuing education across a broad range of formula categories. He has served as the president of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists and is currently the chair of the Midwest SCC chapter. Previously, Romanowski worked for Alberto Culver, serving as a senior project leader for hair care innovation. Additionally, he has made appearances on popular TV shows, including Dr. Oz and Rachel Ray. He is the founder and creator of the ChemistCorner.com website dedicated to teaching about cosmetic science. Valerie George is co-host of the Beauty Brains podcast, is a cosmetic chemist, science communicator, educator, leader, and avid proponent of transparency in the beauty industry. She works on the latest research in hair color and hair care as vice president of research and development at a leading salon brand. And I'm so excited to talk to you about how products are formulated. First, I'd like to talk about for estheticians as an educator that I deal with all the time, they just want to know how to pick products. What should they be looking for in ingredients and how do they pick them for their use on clients in their back bar as well as retail? Well, I think it's challenging because you can't judge a product by its cover. Just by looking at an ingredient list, maybe you can get an idea of what's in there, but without really knowing how the product is formulated or, or being behind the scenes on it, it really just is hard to tell. So for me personally, I look for brands that I trust, brands that I know have a, a track record and history of, of having really good products and also looking for bigger brands. You know, a lot of people think big corporations are evil, but at the end of the day, the big brands are the ones doing the testing, validating that what they're saying has at least some kernel of truth to it. I have to agree with that. Uh, and thank you, Cheryl, for having us on. It's, it's good to talk to a, a different audience. In the Beauty Brains, we get a wide range of people who listen. But yeah, this is a, a whole, whole new avenue for us. But um, I will echo what uh, Valerie had said, that you really, as a consumer of products or as an esthetician looking for products for consumers, you can't look at the packaging and look at the bottle and look at the price and know how good a product is going to be. 
So the only strategy or the best strategy that I would suggest to people is to find, you know, at some point you just got to pick a product and then find products that work for you. I agree with Valerie that the best place to start is with bigger companies because they're going to have done the research behind them. Uh, they're going to have developed, they've done consumer testing to demonstrate that products work well for a lot of people. It's not going to mean that it's going to work for everybody. It's going to depend on your clients. And certainly smaller companies can come out with products that uh, are very good and very good for niche audiences. But without any other data, if I'm starting out, I'm looking for, you know, what are the popular brands and what are popular products with people? The other day I was listening to a webinar with a woman who is part of a skincare company, and she was claiming that they put the most effective, highest amount of uh, efficacy ingredients in their products. And yes, it costs a little bit more, but that's what she believes in, in terms of creating her skincare products. And just out of curiosity, how do I know that that's what she's, you know, what she's claiming? How do I know that that is true? We all understand that when we read a label, highest ingredients at the top of the list, and it goes down from there. But it doesn't tell me what percentage. And also, I don't know personally what percentage is effective. I think that's really where brand trust comes into play. There is really no way to tell if she's telling the truth or not. So that's yeah. where I think you build a relationship with a brand and, and trust them and have some proof, you know, if the products are working, that's awesome. You can take her word for it. If, you know, she's saying these things and they're not working for you or your guests, then that doesn't mean she's lying, but it's just not, not working out. So I think that's really where trusting the company that you're buying from comes into play. There really is no way to tell. And I would say that when somebody who is selling a product is making a claim, your first inclination should be that you do not believe them. Um, <laughs> and that, as a consumer, that well, not is be your... Not believe them, but, you know, just uh, question it. Right. right. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, it's just, there's a slice difference there, but um, they're, they're just not reliable people to pr provide information. And that's not to say that they are specifically lying. It's just that you're going to do better for yourself if you disbelieve what they say up front. Only through your own trying of the product can you tell, is, is this product working? Because even a claim like the one that she says, oh, we're using the highest efficacy of an ingredient. Uh, first of all, uh, to figure out what the efficacy of an ingredient is, scientific studies are done in specific ways. They might test uh, specifically just the ingredient by itself or the ingredient in a, a vehicle that's they can deliver it but it's not aesthetically pleasing they certainly haven't taken the products that that person is selling and tested the you know the optimum level in that and uh, marketers tend to exaggerate what science really knows and just because a study was done on something at 2% and on 20 people, it showed some effect. That doesn't mean that's the best level. Maybe it works better at 10% or maybe it works better at one and a half percent, but those things were never tested. And so when they say the optimum level, that's, that's certainly an exaggeration. Right. And then that's also part of marketing, right? So, because let's just pick Retin-A for an example, at certain level, which I don't know what level that is, it's safe for consumers on a consumer shelf product. 
But then at a higher level, it is a prescription, a doctor to prescribe retin-A in the product. So when they say we're using the optimal amount, that's subjective. And when you're talking about those kinds of ingredients, specifically the, the prescription uh, retinoid is uh, tretinoin, but then the things that aren't prescription level, uh, retinoic acid, uh, retinal palmitate, uh, those things haven't been demonstrated to work as well and effective as the prescription drug. It doesn't matter the level. Again, it's more marketing exaggeration in that specific sense. How does the esthetician um, educate themselves on product ingredients and what they should be looking for when they are picking a skincare line? Well, I think it's important to know your resource, right? There's a lot of people providing information on the internet, on YouTube. That doesn't mean it's good information. I don't mean to plug the beauty brains, but you know, that's what we're here for. Oh, to plug away, plug away. <laughs> <laughs> to help demystify the science behind the products because it is marketing, you know, companies are in the business of selling products. And I was telling Perry yesterday, wow, these marketing people are so smart. Like it's, I'm book smart, but they're like street smart, right? They know exactly what to say, how to say it. And I could, I, I don't think like that. So um, I think the beauty brains are an excellent resource for that. There are also a lot of online courses that are now becoming available to people. Perry has an excellent website called Chemist Corner, where he has a lot of free content for people wanting to know the basics about cosmetic science and how to critically think for themselves. It, it's absolutely fabulous. And to go a little further, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of ingredients, I would suggest people go to Google Scholar, type the ingredient and topical and skin and see what kind of papers come up. And if you specifically look for review papers, now, the th stuff that's published on Google Scholar, those are typically peer-reviewed journals. They're not marketing pieces. One of the big challenges, if you just go to Google and you type in uh, an ingredient and try to find out, the first things that are going to come up on the search engine are things that are written by people marketing things, or they're written by uh, reporters that have that work for beauty magazines or, uh, you know, or bloggers telling you they'll, they'll be repeating information about ingredients and effectiveness, uh, which are controlled by what the marketers want you to know. So then it's not completely reliable. I wouldn't do a Google searches or DuckDuckGo searches to find out good information about uh, ingredients. You'll find out about how the ingredients are marketed. But if you want to find out effectiveness, you're going to have to go to the peer-reviewed literature. And through Google uh, Scholar is the way to do that. Unfortunately, uh, if you don't have a background in uh, biology or chemistry or dermatology, a lot of times, uh, you know, your eyes will glaze over trying to read this stuff. And that's where uh, people like us come in. Uh, Valerie and I, we can read a scientific paper and kind of know the implications of that and then try to communicate that back out. Well, uh, Valerie, first of all, that's why I had um, both of you on, is in our industry, we're, we're heavily in that marketing world and we're not mm -hmm. truth. And we really um, need to have that truth as estheticians. We're practitioners, that, that so we're people that are touching someone's face every day with these products. And it would uh, behoove us to be ethically correct when we do so. So when, if we're working just based on what we hear marketers tell us, then it's not really doing our best effort. Then Perry, I, one of your podcasts, I remember you saying uh, something about uh, peer review studies that you want to read those 
in terms of products so that you understand how it's thought of in the peer world, not the marketing world. So that the peers say this is um, uh, poppycock, you know, that, uh, you can sort of like move on from there. And lastly, I know that wasn't the question yet, but lastly, uh, yes, you can glaze over reading these things, but the more you read them, the better you get at them. The purpose of this podcast is to educate estheticians who don't get this as part of their education in their schools so that they know where to find things. And it might be a little challenging, but they will learn as they go. So uh, great sources are like the American Academy of Dermatology. They, they publish yep. papers uh, monthly. Uh, that's an excellent source. You know, the British Journal of Dermatology is another, another great place. But these are serious research papers. And, you know, you can read the abstract and try to figure out what's going on. And even I have a hard time figuring out what's going on. And I have mm -hmm. a, a training in science. So it can be done. Uh, but it's certainly not as easy as going to uh, your, lo your, your local vlogger and seeing what they think about this new ingredient. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, it's, it's harder. I, I, there's no sugarcoating that. Yeah. So as we segue into how things are made, can you just first stop and explain the difference between natural, organic, and chemicals in skincare products? Oh, yeah, that, that's tough because, you know, some of them don't really have any meaning, right? So people throw the word natural around all the time, and natural doesn't have a legal definition when it comes to the FDA. Is it, a lot of people use it in place of you know, naturally derived. Perry and I had this conversation yesterday. He does an excellent analogy that you can't walk up to a plant and squeeze out cocomitopropyl betaine. You just can't do it, right? It's naturally derived, but it's, it's not natural per se. And I think that's where the confusion comes in for consumers because they think it's, you know, things are just pulled right from the earth and used and, and you can't do that. Organic is a little bit better in that there are some legal legal requirements that you have to meet, but that doesn't necessarily mean the product is any better for you. Organic really refers to a farming and cultivation practice that is used when the ingredients, uh, the origins of the ingredients, the feedstock that's used to make them are being grown. It has nothing to do with it performs better, performs worse. It's just how the ingredients were farmed. Fortunately, that does have regulations, at least in the United States, but in terms of what it does for the consumer, that's still a little bit unclear. And I would say chemical free, at least from the standpoint of scientists, is just a nonsense claim. <laughs> uh, everything is a chemical. Uh, there is no such thing as chemical free. People will say something like uh, apple cider vinegar is not a chemical. That's a chemical. Vinegar is a chemical. Water is a chemical. So that's why I, I bristle at claims like chemical free because they are just misleading people. Uh, I don't always know what people really refer to when they say chemical free, but there's water in it because uh, water is a chemical. Um, just to uh, get back to the, the natural piece, one of the reasons that natural got adopted to the cosmetic industry is it, it comes from food. Um, a lot, in fact, a lot of marketing trends that happen in the food industry make mm. their way into the cosmetic industry. And, and that's where in the food industry, something like natural actually makes sense. Uh, you can go and pick a banana off a tree or go out and get your green beans and pick it right off and eat it. And that's natural food. Uh, what you can't do is uh, go out there and get a Twinkie 
right? A Twinkie is processed food to make. So there is a distinct difference between uh, natural food and processed food. There isn't that in cosmetics. You can't go out into your garden and pick off uh, a lipstick, right? You have to actually do some chemical processing to create lipsticks or or anything else that is a cosmetic, hair conditioners, shampoos, uh, skin moisturizers, none of these things are natural. Chem cosmetics are all not natural. So that's why I kind of bristle also at the, the marketing of things as natural, because at best, they're naturally derived. But then again, everything's naturally derived. So Because petroleum comes out of the ground naturally. That's not how the market looks at it, but that is the real real problem with me for natural because there are no natural cosmetics on that line of thinking can you explain the difference between a synthetic products versus non-synthetic boy i wish i could <laughs> yeah. valerie you want to take a stab at this one <laughs> yeah well i think you know it's interesting there are things that yes there are natural compounds that you can extract from plants there are synthetic compounds that you can create from different feedstocks using the power of chemistry. And sometimes the two cross over each other. For example, sodium benzoate is a great example. You can isolate sodium benzoate, it's a preservative, from plants. Is it efficient to do that? Is it economic to do that? Absolutely not. It's, you get very low yield out of that. So sodium benzoate fortunately can be produced from chemistry. If you were to take plant isolated sodium benzoate and synthetic chemistry made sodium benzoate and put them next to each other and analyze them, you would not be able to tell the difference. They are considered identical, yet one is synthetic and one is natural. We call those uh, nature identical synthetics. Will a consumer notice a difference? Absolutely not. It's just the source of where it came from. And, and people associate this nasty stigma with synthetic ingredients, but you want synthetic ingredients in a lot of cases. For example, I think we've discussed before the uh, pigments, right? Pigments and makeup. Sure, you can go get iron oxide straight out of the earth. Would you want to use it? Uh, yeah, if you want mercury and other heavy metals. Uh, and lead, you know. From you know? Yeah. <laughs> and lead yeah. um, in your products. No, so you, you want to refine it. You want to synthetically produce it to remove any contaminants and make sure that it's safe. So in a lot of ways, synthetic is better from a purity perspective. And from a consistency perspective too. One of the big problems using natural ingredients and even naturally derived ingredients is that the quality of that material is gonna depend on the growing conditions and the growing conditions depend on the weather. And so one, one year you're gonna have a, a really great crop that's gonna have a, a chemical composition that's really works really well for skin products. And another year you're gonna have the same, uh, same crop or same plants, but it's, the quality is just gonna be different. The soil will be different. The environment that is exposed to is different. And the products at the end of the day are different. One of the advantages of something that's been created in a lab is that you can get consistency. You get the same product year after year after year. One of the things that I get asked frequently is creating your own products. So a lot of estheticians create their own products right at their kitchen table. How does someone come up with a recipe for a skincare product? Well, I think it takes some fundamental understanding of science, some fundamental understanding of cosmetic products and how they go together. Without that, it's really hard 
to know where to start, right? It's like, well, what kind of, kind of things do I put together? What kind of texture am I looking to make? You have to have a foundation. So I think it's really important if you don't have a science background or don't have a, a fundamental understanding of how to make a soap or a lotion or a cream or whatever, that you take a course and learn how to do that. Perry does have a course on his website about learning how to formulate. He can talk about that and, and tell that you more true. about it. But having, having that knowledge is absolutely essential, whether you're making products for yourself or making products to put on other people. Additionally, having an understanding of, of good lab practices so that you can reproduce the product is really critical in cooking you know, I, I'm not a great cook, I'm, I'm going to confess, but if I follow a recipe, I'm an amazing cook, right? So I think it's important to understand that, um, you know, there, there's things to follow to get consistent results, documentation that's required. So having both a good lab practice, you know, lab being in the kitchen, but having good practices in that way, and a fundamental understanding of cosmetic products as well as science will be a good starting point. Consistency is absolutely the key. If you're going to make your own products, you want to make a product that is the same uh, time and time again. And only by picking ingredients that are all from the same suppliers or consistent suppliers, uh, you can't buy uh, coconut oil from one company and then the next time you make it, buy coconut oil from another company because they might chemically not be identical. That's one of the big challenges. One of the things I would say to people who who want to start their own uh, products or make their own products is the first, the, the first thing is there's a reality check here. The reality is your products are not going to be as good or better than the stuff you can just buy. Okay. <laughs> Let's just start there. The, because companies have the advantage of having access to all the different suppliers, all of the best technologies and things. And if, and it's going to cost you more money and, uh, it's just really difficult to, to do. That's There's some equipment problems. And, you know, if you're an esthetician, uh, do you want to set up your own lab and have to worry about GMP and uh, chemical storage? And uh, there's just a lot to worry about. So if you are going to make your own products and you come up with a formula, ultimately to get that produced, you're going to want to work with a contract manufacturer who can help to translate your formula you mixed up together into something that is a real sellable product. But I don't, I don't, I only say that upfront to, but I don't say that to discourage you. I just want you to have a realistic idea of what you can actually accomplish. Having said that, people can make products that work well for their clients and they can make products that work just as good as something that you might be able to go out and buy. So uh, it's not an impossible task. Uh, I just, you, sh you should just have a, a realistic vision of what can and can't be done. Ultimately, working with a, a formulator is probably your best bet. That's what I was going to ask next is once they have their recipe and maybe a concept idea, then uh, what should they do next with that? And you just segued us into that finding a formulator. How do they find a formulator? There are a lot of formulators on the internet if you do a Google search, but I think it can be daunting because it's, it's a big investment, right? So if someone's asking you to spend several thousand dollars to have your formula come to life, uh, it can be a bit scary. So I really would rely on, again, Perry has a website, Chemist Corner. There's a forum. There's a list of formulators that offer services. 
you can vet them through there. The Society of Cosmetic Chemists is an excellent organization that is about the advancement of cosmetic science. Typically, people who are members of that society are, are in the know, they're connected, they're, they're legit, um, I guess legit in some way or another. And I, I, I think that's a really good way also to find people. I've gotten a lot of, not necessarily people looking for formulators through there, I've gotten some of that, but uh, a lot of people actually do use the society to connect and find a network. So you could also start there. Yeah, I, LinkedIn is actually a great source for finding people who have uh, actual formulating backgrounds. One of the challenges that you're going to face when you're find, looking for formulators is, you know, you're going to do what people do. You go to Google and say, where's a formulator? <laughs> and the people that come up are not necessarily the people that are the best formulators or the people with the most experience. In fact, they're most likely not. They're they're just the people who are the best at uh, being able to rank high in search engines. And the reason is that because to, to develop a, an expertise in formulating, you have decades in the industry. And the people who come out with decades in the industry who know this information, uh, they have been doing chemistry. They've been in the industry. They're, they're older people. They aren't they don't know about search engines and, and websites and things. They certainly don't know about social media. And the thing about being a cosmetic chemist, there is no official certification that, oh, this is a competent cosmetic chemist. So you, as somebody who wants to work with a chemist, it's really up to you to kind of vet them yourself. You, I mean, somebody, I've, I've seen people say, oh, I've got 25 years of formulating experience that makes me a formulator. Well, if that 25 years is, uh, you know, making stuff in your kitchen, you know, that's not going to help you to launch a product. What you really want is somebody who has a background that has worked on brands that are on sale or that have been on sale in the marketplace. You're going to typically want to find people who have chemistry degrees or chemical engineering degrees, or who have worked with uh, larger companies or legitimate companies. It's it's not hard to just start an Instagram account, call yourself a cosmetic chemist, and then you know say, hey, I can formulate for you. These people know nothing. Uh, they, so it's just the blind leading the blind. And you could lose a lot of money by, uh, by mm -hmm. paying for somebody who does not have uh, knowledge that really is needed to uh, officially launch a product. And I've had a lot of people come to me where they have drained a lot of money and other resources and still not gotten what they needed. It's, it's you know, it's very, it's very sad, um, especially when you have limited resources and you're trying to get a leg up. So research is fundamental. And if you're just working with a formulator, they're pretty much just putting the formulation together and nothing else. They're not helping you contract materials and packaging and anything else that has to go into this process. Not necessarily. There are formulators who specialize in what we call product development. So formulators work in research and development. Product development is the piece where all that kind of stuff comes together. It's the packaging. It's the, okay, the formula is done. Where is it going to be manufactured? How are we going to get it to market? It's the, you know, I call it the prettier side of the R&D business. There are formulators who have expertise in that and can assist you with that. So those are questions that I would ask the formulator when interviewing them, asking what their expertise is. What do you have a lab that you're connected with? You know, do you have manufacturers that you're connected with that 
you could refer me to if you do need a 360 approach and assistance. That's one of the things you should do when you're vetting formulators. Um, ask them what you get. Uh, if they put together a formula for you, they should tell you not only the percentages of all the ingredients and the procedure for making that, they should also tell you the what are the raw material suppliers uh, that work with this formula? Because just because a raw material has the same name, if it's made by a different supplier, it might not work the same in your formula. That's something that might be surprising to people, but the cetyl alcohol you can get from company A might not work the same as the cetyl alcohol you get from company B, even though they have exactly the same name. Uh, that's, that's one of the, so make sure you get all of the suppliers of the ingredients that were used. Uh, additionally, you should have uh, specifications and specifications are just measurements about the formula, the way the formula is characterized that lets you produce the same thing over and over. And when we talk about specifications for a skin product, for example, uh, you're gonna have a pH range. So the pH range should be somewhere between say four and a half and five and a half. And so every time you make that batch, that pH should be in that range. If it comes out as six, then something has gone wrong. Uh, so you want your formulator to set those specifications for you, specifications, raw materials, and have certificate of analysis uh, on all of your raw materials is another thing that you wanna have. So. Uh, Getting all of that information will help you have more control over your formula and be able to produce a consistent product. We talked about in a previous conversation, private labeling. Um, do you wanna explain what that is for everyone? Yeah, private labeling is where you go to a company that is producing products and you can brand it as your own. So it's not necessarily custom where oh, I have a vision for this cream and I want it to have these actives and I want it to have this fragrance and I want it to feel this way. It's not really that. It's going to a company that is producing a cream and it's, imagine it being in a blank jar and you just put your own label on it. That's private label. That is an excellent way. If you're not in a financial position to invest a lot of money in custom formula development and creation, or you're not interested in owning your own formulas, but you just want some really good formulas, but put your own marketing on it. Private label really is a great way to get your foot in the door. I agree. Uh, if you're going to, if you're serious about starting a line, the one thing that you've got to get good at is not making the product. You've got to get good at marketing and selling the product. And if you can start with something like a private label that gets all of the formulation work done and production done without you worrying about it, you can focus on what's the most important thing that is the marketing and selling. With private label, the liability, when you pick it from like their catalog, their pre-made stuff, is the liability on them if something goes wrong with the product or as well as the person who's selling it or representing it with their label on it? I think it depends on the manufacturer, honestly. Typically when you engage in an agreement with a manufacturer, whether it's for custom formulation, something that's yours, something they developed for you, or something that you're actually private labeling, that is a conversation that should be had. And it should be in writing. And at the end of the day, whatever the decision of responsibility is, because if you don't have that and you get into a situation where your guest has an adverse reaction, someone needs to pay up, right? And hopefully if it's not your formulas, not your manufacturing, hopefully it's not you. 
the private label manufacturer may say you need to take legal responsibility for any claims that you make. That's not on us. Just work that out, get it in writing. A lot of people think contracts or having lawyers involved is, you know, a high cost. No, just the the price of doing that is high. The cost at the end when it doesn't work out for you could be even higher. So I always tell people, it seems like a lot, get it in writing. Paper has a good memory. Have it clear up front because you don't want to be in a situation where you're on the market and something happens and you're in a pickle and not knowing who's responsible and then you're footing the bill. Not good. And especially in the United States, people will sue anybody and it's the people who have the money are the people who are at the most risk. So do you think um, private label starting out first is a, a nice way to start out when you're trying to maybe do one product at a time that you want to formulate? So it gives you an idea of how products work because I understand private labels will also formulate for you too for a product that you think you want to create. Yeah, they can. I think it's a, a great way without having a huge in, investment because you could get into selling products and say, you know what, it's tougher than I thought. Not for me. You know what? I don't even like doing it. Those are all possible things. And you don't want to be a quarter of a million in with this big brand that you've created and you don't even want to sell it or it's yeah. not selling. So I think it's that an excellent You could way. end up with a, you know, a basement full of a pallet of skin lotions that are going to expire in a year and you haven't sold them. So the thing about starting with a private label, uh, you can make it look the way you want, you know, in a nice label. Uh, you can tell the story that you want. Uh, and then if, the brand starts to take off, well, then you can start looking at and creating formulas that you own, that you want, and you can specialize in things. But you should first prove that you have the chops needed to be a cosmetic product marketer because it's not easy. <laughs> right. When someone does have their own recipe idea or concept for a product, should they patent? When in the process should they patent it or should they patent it before they even start with a formulator? I would say, honestly, almost never. And I think <laughs> and Carrie I can do a job. <laughs> and I would just say, no, never. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really? a patent is pretty much a waste of money for almost every idea that people have as terms of cosmetics. Yeah. I mean, patents really are to protect like the idea that you have in, app, in, in the application that you're looking at it for. And there are so many ways to get around a patent. There are other technologies that can be used and it is really expensive. And probably at the end of the day, your idea is not novel enough to be patented. Almost everything has been done. My mentor has been in the industry since the sixties. And every time I think I have this like cool idea and I search the internet and I'm like, I can't find anything like it. I created something so cool. He's like, Oh yeah, we tried that in 1965 and here's why it didn't work. And you know, so uh, I think I would invest rather invest your money in the marketing and getting people aware of your product uh, versus patenting because at the end of the day, a patent's probably not going to do you any good. And there are bigger companies who dedicate hundreds of millions a year just in patenting that could easily uh, block the space around you. If you look at the patents that are gotten by big companies, L'Oreal, P&G, they really use those as marketing vehicles so they can say put a little patent number on their product that sort of provides some sort of uniqueness uh, not only to the consumer but to investors investors love to see ip but 
as far as how the product works and the functionality and whether the consumers notice any benefit from it, the patents provide none of that. Yeah. Are there any uh, pitfalls that uh, should be avoided in creating a product? To me, the biggest pitfall is making sure that you understand what you're getting into. There are a lot of complexities in creating a product, and it's important that you are able to establish a good communication rapport with whoever you're working with. If it's a consultant, if it's a manufacturer, not having good communication and not understanding what the outcome or how the process works can be really detrimental and lead to a lot of frustration. I meet a lot of people who get frustrated with manufacturers and testing facilities and, oh, I didn't know that. I wish someone told me and they don't know about regulations. And it's important that if you don't know how to do that or you don't think you have the wherewithal to learn how to do that, to get someone on your side who can. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're just going to keep spending money. You're going to keep running into walls and you can mitigate that by having someone who knows what they're doing on your side or someone that can give you the resources for that. And it will make the product launch a whole lot more fun. I would agree that the biggest pitfall is financial. It's people putting up a lot of money and not knowing what they're doing. And so my advice to somebody who is starting a line, first of all, you need money. I get a lot of people coming to me and say, oh, I want to start a line, but I have no money. <laughs> like, okay, you can't, you can't yeah, do that. That's tough. But if you have the money, also, you don't want to just spend it willy-nilly. Uh, you could easily find a cosmetic formulator out there who would say, oh, I can make your formula for $25,000. Uh, great. And you spend that, and you've got this, and now then what, right? You've got to learn how to be able to not only get the product made, but sell it. And so my advice would be, you know, have money that you can spend, but spend as little as you possibly can. You don't want to put, invest a lot of money up front in an inventory that you haven't been able to sell. And that gets me to my second point. The number one thing you should be doing if you're starting a line is making sales. Make sales as soon as you possibly can. Uh, things like uh, the GoFundMes are, are great to start up because you can create a page. And if you can't convince people just with the concept of your idea without actually having a product made, then you got to keep trying. <laughs> don't, don't even make a product until you can convince people that they want to buy your idea. And probably people should start off with one product at a time and build on that, right? It's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to do too much at one time. And the other thing I think is critical is a lot of wrenches come in along the way. Even I work for a big brand and I sometimes I think we, we should have it down by now and, and stuff happens. You can't control it. It's inevitable. So learn when to be flexible, when to make a pivot and say, you know what, I can make this work. And I, I think that will help go a long way. The thing that's useful to know is uh, like, how long will this take? Some people get this idea. Oh, I've got an idea for a product. I want to have it ready by the end of the month or something like that. The reality is when a big company launches a product, it takes at least a year to launch, to go from idea to getting a product on the shelf. Um, smaller companies can do that a little quicker because there are contract manufacturers that can turn around stuff really quick. But with private all label. Testing, mm -hmm. Yeah, and private label too. But with all the testing and such that's required, uh, you, sh you should expect that you will not be able to have a product ready uh, for six months to a year.
at least sometimes yeah. I even forget what year we're in because we're working <laughs> so far out on a marking calendar. I'm like, wait, we're in 2020, right? It's crazy. But that, those are all the things that you have to do, especially as a big brand to tick all, tick all the boxes to get it to market. It's, it's yeah, I mean, some, and there's things that you don't even think about. It's, there are some packages. If you, if you order a package, it's, there's a, like a six week minimum just to get that packaging and you can't make anything. Yeah. And so if you don't know this stuff about lead times and that sort of thing, it can be very uh, surprising how long things take. Uh, read somewhere that in the makeup world, they, people usually launch like lipsticks first as like the first product. And then they go into the other categories like blush and foundation. Mm -hmm. Do you think would be the first product for skincare? I would use one that people are going to use a lot of and that there's high replenishment on. I think if you were to create a product that someone could keep around for six months to a year, like, oh, look how long this lasts. You're not going to get people coming back to buy more. And then you have to reach out further and further in your network to continue to generate those first sales. So I would think of a product that has high consumer demand, can be repurchased rather readily, and that people are going to want to tell their friends about it. So, uh, yeah, I would agree. Something like a, a small bottle serum is good. Maybe that can be used up within a month or something. Uh, moisturizers are, you, you know, it, it's difficult to launch a moisturizer because there's so many out there. But if it's your special moisturizer and you have your special ingredients in it, uh, that's another another product. And cleansers get used up pretty quick too. Cleansers would be another good option. What wouldn't be a good option is some sort of specific spot treatment product for a specific thing mm -hmm. because they'll use that for, you know, a a couple of weeks, not run out, and then they won't use it for another. So something that has a high product turnover is a is the best thing to start with. Even though there are a lot of moisturizers on the market, that that seems to be the one product that every woman understands on how to use it, what it's for. But my personal favorite is serums because I understand that they have a smaller molecular composition, so they actually penetrate the skin better than a moisturizer and they actually do some kind of work. Is that something that's on target or? I think so. I think, well, I think the real thing behind serums is that the idea is to deliver a high concentration of actives and the format is such that it can have better delivery than maybe an occlusive moisturizer. Harry and I were actually talking yesterday about azelaic acid and why it's in a certain format over another. Uh, you can check it out, episode 227 of the Beauty Brains. But it was interesting that the format played a big role in actives delivery for that. So I think serums are popular in that sense. I like to use serums because they're lightweight. I'm a, I'm a lazy uh, face taker, carer of her. Uh, but I do know that I can get some moisturization from a serum. And for me, uh, as a consumer, the actives, I'm interested in what actives are getting delivered to my skin. So I think that would be a great one to start out with. What advice would you like to give someone who is making products at their kitchen table and how they can protect themselves if they continue to want to go down that road? Protection is very important. As we talked earlier, litigation is, is very real, um, especially when we're talking about the safety of consumers. There is an organization called Indie Business Network. I'm not affiliated with them other than that I am a member because I'm interested in what they have to say. They're all about education and supporting the indie business brand. They actually have a program where by becoming a member of the indie business network, you can have access to an insurance company partnership that they have. It's not for 
products made at manufacturing facilities and, and by big brands. The insurance really is for people making handmade products that they can have affordable product liability insurance to protect them in the event their product causes an adverse reaction for somebody. And I think access to that kind of affordable insurance is really, really awesome. People think, oh, I can't afford insurance. Well, can you afford to lose your house and everything else you have because you weren't protected? Again, that goes back to price and cost. Like the cost could be a whole lot different than the price. So Indie Business Network does have that access if you're making handmade products. Yeah, and I would say another thing that people should consider, if you're going to make products for uh, consumers, uh, set up uh, an S-Corp or a limited liability corporation. Uh, don't operate as a sole proprietor. That sole proprietor is the easiest thing to do in the United States anyway. It also puts your house and your car and all of your assets on the line. Whereas if you set up a, a corporation that sort of separates you from that and that separates your liability, from your personal stuff. So uh, if you're going to be selling products to consumers, you know, make sure you've separated your personal from your business. Are there any last thoughts that you that we didn't cover that you think somebody should know about product selection, ingredient selection, formulation? Have, have I mean, I think we've covered it all, but yeah, just to re recap, engage in dialogue with experts that you trust, your dermatologist, your esthetician, go to reliable resources like the Beauty Brains or Chemist Corner with the network of experienced formulators there and just be inquisitive and be open-minded to changing your opinion as well when you learn more about something. And I would just like to leave people with the idea that even though a lot of what I have said might be discouraging to people. Um, <laughs> Here is the skeptic. In, <laughs> but it's good. It's good to be skeptical. Product, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just know that it can be done. And a lot of it is as an esthetician, you're developing a relationship with your clients and people, you can make products that work, you know, just about as good as the, the products that people can just go buy in the store. The products in the store, they don't have that relationship with that person and you can leverage that relationship to, and that's going to really where you're going to help to build your business and, and sell your products. Just don't use uh, marketing gobbledygook to sell a product. If you're making a moisturizer, don't say, oh, this one's clean and the stuff you buy in the store is going to be poisoning people. Don't use fear mongering to sell your products. Use your relationship and your sincerity to sell your products. I mean, everybody can make these things. Some products will work better than others, uh, but you don't have to use uh, dodgy marketing to get people to buy your products. Exactly, and Perry, I, don't, I, I think that you're being realistic, not encouraging anybody. And that's the reason why I wanted to speak with you guys, because I love your podcast just for that reason, because I feel that I'm getting, as a listener, real information on how to discern things in my industry. Is there anything that you want to tell us about in terms of things you're doing, books you've written, things you want to share with us, classes you give? Yeah, well, you know, don't forget, uh, we have a mostly weekly podcast, The Beauty Brains, where we answer questions that consumers send in. And so please uh, tune into that. And uh, we specifically don't take advertising. So the only way that we fund it is through uh, Patreon subscriptions. So you can go to patreon.com slash the beauty brains and check out a scribe there. Uh, that's one of the big challenges of 
uh, producing honest information when it's not supported by marketers is that it's harder to make any money. (laughs) (laughs) But it's good that we're not in it for the money, right? We really do care about people having the right knowledge and empowering them to make better decisions. That's really what we love doing. And we like talking about this stuff. So uh, the other site that Valerie had mentioned was uh, another one I do called Chemist Corner, which really focuses on teaching people how to formulate cosmetic products. So go check that out if you're interested in that. And then Perry, I know that you've written a couple books too. What are those? Uh, I do have a book uh, called Beginning Cosmetic Chemistry. We also have uh, books through the beauty brains called uh, It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. Do You Get Hooked on Lip Balm? So... Yeah, yeah check those out. Those are still available on Amazon, wherever you can get books. Excellent. And anything else you want to share? Yeah, yeah. some stuff in the works, but we can't talk about that yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Just, just, Time. just how about our tagline, Valerie? <laughs> Be brainy about your beauty. I just want to give a big thanks to Perry and Valerie. I hope to have them on again. I was so geeking out talking to my heroes, my science heroes. So I really do want to Uh, give them a big thanks for appreciation for being on my podcast. I'm Cheryl Stroud, and you've been listening to Skin365.expert, the podcast. You can follow Skin365.expert and Cheryl Rushy Stroud on Instagram or visit us on Skin365.expert on the web. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Skin365.expert conversation. Thank you for listening.